Amen. If you have your Bibles, would you take them out and turn to the book of Hosea, chapter 8. The text is printed in your bulletin, but I'd ask if you have your Bibles, would you go ahead and take them out, turn to Hosea, the end of the Old Testament. We've been going through Hosea for eight weeks now, and this has been a, a book that is challenging in some ways. It's challenging both culturally and contextually because it comes from a far culture long ago, and so there are elements that are, are different. And it's challenging because Hosea is a prophet who doesn't pull any punches. He comes and brings conviction of sin. And that's what he continues to do in chapter 8. But at the same time, what we've seen throughout the book is that as he offers us and he calls us to feel the conviction of our sin that he preaches, at the same time, he's one of the most generous and gracious prophets in painting this portrait for us of the grace and mercy of God, who though Israel would go and repeatedly leave the Lord and wander the streets worshiping other gods, God says he is like that faithful husband who continues time and time again to go out after them. Though they do not seek him, he seeks them. That's the kind of God that we worship and serve, is a God who doesn't wait for us to come to him. He comes and seeks out us and brings us back to himself. As we continue chapter 8 today, <clears throat> this again is a challenging chapter. It's challenging in the words uh, that he speaks, bringing Israel and hopefully us as well to a conviction of sin. Let me uh, give you a preview of the structure of this chapter so you can listen for it as I read. It's really pretty simple. In chapter 8, God is going to bring Israel to a conviction of hypocrisy. And so in, in verse two, if you see, Israel is going to say, God, we know you. That's their claim. And if you look at the end of the chapter, verse uh, 14, here's God's conclusion of the matter. Israel has forgotten his maker. So at the beginning they say, God, we know you. And God gets the end and he says, no, you don't. And in the middle between those verses is the evidence that the Lord brings. He sort of surveys then their conduct and their lives and he reaches his own conclusion about what they have said. So, let's go ahead and read the chapter. If you're able, would you join me in standing today for the reading of God's Word? <clears throat> this is Hosea chapter 8, starting in verse 1. Set the trumpet to your lips. One like a vulture is over the house of the Lord because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. To me they cry, My God, we, Israel, know you. Israel has spurned the good, the enemy shall pursue him. They made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. With their silver and gold they made idols for their own destruction. I have spurned your calf, O Samaria. My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? For it is from Israel. A craftsman made it. It is not God. The calf of Samaria shall be broken to pieces. For they sow the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind. The standing grain has no heads. It shall yield no flower. If it were to yield, strangers would devour it. Israel is swallowed up already. They are among the nations as a useless vessel. For they have gone up to Assyria a wild donkey wandering alone. Ephraim has hired lovers. Though they hire allies among the nations, I will soon gather them up, as the king and princes shall soon 
writhe because of the tribute. Because Ephraim has multiplied altars for sinning, they have become to him altars for sinning. Were I to write for him my law by the ten thousands, they would be regarded as a strange thing. As for my sacrificial offerings, they sacrifice meat and eat it, but the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. They shall return to Egypt. For Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces, and Judah has multiplied fortified cities. So I will send a fire upon his cities, and it shall devour her strongholds. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray one more time. Father, we ask that you, by the power of your Spirit, at work within us today, would give us hearts of flesh that are sensitive to the leadings of your Spirit as we read and hear your word. We ask that you may open the eyes of our hearts, that we may indeed see wonderful things in your word that that call us to a life of humble submission to you, to know your word and to love you because of it. We ask that your spirit will be at work in our hearts today. Father, teach us, nurture us, nourish our hearts, we pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Please be seated. When I was in high school, my English teacher defined a classic, as in a classic piece of literature, as one that regardless of when it was written, be it 20 years ago or 200 years ago or 2,000 years ago, nevertheless, as you read it, it feels as though it could have been written to you just this week. No matter when it was written, it feels as though it has this sense that it could have been written yesterday. There are certain books that do that. Uh, that they speak to us in that way because they're not merely speaking to the issues of the day, but because they speak to the issues of the human heart. Because they address the fears and the desires and the longings and the temptations and everything that, that the human heart faces in life, and we know that human nature does not change. So we tend to think, oh, the 17th century sounds so distant to us. We think that was so foreign. They did not have the technology we have, and we think life must have been so different. But then you read something like Pilgrim's Progress or Paradise Lost, and, and you recognize these are thoroughly current-sounding books because they're addressing matters of the heart. They address human nature as it is, and human nature remains the same. That's what we encounter in Hosea chapter 8, is that he is speaking here not merely of the matters of the day, but he is addressing matters of the human heart. And so on the one hand, we read this chapter, and perhaps much of the book of Hosea feels very foreign to us, because it comes from this other culture 2,700 years ago, and we think, this was so different. He speaks differently to us. On the other hand, we recognize the opposite is true as well. We recognize that it has this timeless quality to it, that that Hosea is addressing matters of the heart, and we know that the human heart doesn't change. That humans today have the same temptations they did 2,700 years ago. They have the same fears, the same desires. So much is the same. We know that these people that Hosea was speaking to in Israel, they, they too were living in a culture that was not friendly to their faith. Even though it was God's people, it was nevertheless hostile to a genuine faith. Every one of them had certain desires, certain temptations to worldliness. 
Each person was a mix of successes and failures. All of them wanted to be known as good people to their friends. They wanted to live lives that were pleasing to God, but often they fell short of what they desired in that area. And so they knew the temptations that we know. They knew the temptation to hypocrisy. That, that thoroughly modern temptation to look at your life and to recognize this doesn't live up to even my own standards of what I feel like I should live as, and therefore, rather than confessing, admitting, asking for help, seeking guidance, what do we do? We put on a mask. We act as though everything is okay. We try to portray the persona that we want people to believe is true about us, regardless of how much it's based in reality. There's no more modern temptation than that. And yet that's exactly what Hosea is dealing with here in chapter 8. In this chapter, God just destroys Israel's hypocrisy. He just dismantles it. And I want to take sort of four, four steps through this chapter. First, we're going to see the call, the urgent call in verse 1, the claim in verse 2, the conviction in verses 3 through 13, and then the consequence at the end. The call, the claim, the conviction, and the consequence. Here's the call. Listen to verse 1. Set the trumpet to your lips. One like a vulture is over the house of the Lord. Now, any time we read scripture, be it reading it alone, individually, together as the church, corporately in worship, any time we read it, we have a duty to listen. And more than that, to pray, Lord, help us to listen. Help us to be sensitive to the things that you would have to say to us today. And yet, there are certain places, and this is one of them, where he tells us specifically, listen. Here, he's, God is speaking to Hosea the prophet, set the trumpet to your lips. He's giving him a particular urgency. I mean, everything the prophet says is urgent for the people, but here in particular he says, listen, make sure the people hear this word. There's an urgency now to this matter, and we do well to, to pay attention, say, what is it that, that gives Hosea this sense of urgency? I think when you're trying to act the part of the hypocrite, now, no one here, no one wants to take that label for themselves. Say, oh, yeah, that's me. I'm okay. But can we be honest? We all have temptations towards that, don't we? We all have parts of ourselves that we just, we don't want that to be on public display. And so what do we do? Well, we lie. You're trying to project an image of someone you are not. And the last thing that you can do when you're trying to portray this image of someone who has it all together, who's living an obedient, good, faithful life that, that should be desired by others. The last thing you can do is admit that you need correction in the Word of God. It makes it really difficult to listen, to hear, or to read the Word of God, and to, to really humble yourself before it. To say, yes, this is the Word that I needed the Lord to speak to me today. I needed this Word of correction. Maybe I needed this Word of rebuke. Maybe I needed this Word of this prophetic warning or call from the Lord to me, to my heart, to say... That's hard when you're trying to pretend you don't need to hear the word of God. And so in this context of speaking to those who are putting on a show, it is especially urgent now for Hosea to say, listen, one like of vulture is over the house of the Lord. He adds his urgency by saying, 
that there's a vulture coming. Now, in the historical context, you know that this applies very directly to the nation of Assyria, who within a matter of 20 to 30 years after Hosea's time, would come and would destroy Israel, would scatter them, send them all into exile. He's speaking of that here, saying, the Lord has the axe laid to the root of the tree. He sees us, he sees our disobedience, he sees our faithfulness, he is not idle.
cover the whole range. And you say, well, that's weird. Those aren't spiritual things. But that's the point. Everything is a spiritual issue. And he could look at all these different areas of their life and say, based on your conduct here, it's clear that you don't know God. Now, his conclusion he'll get to, and we want to keep this in mind, is verse 14, that Israel has forgotten his maker. And that's, that's the issue. That as he goes through these different areas of life, what he's judging here is, how well do they know the Lord? See, it's, it's a heart issue more than anything else. He can look at every area of life and say, does this betray the fact that you know the Lord and love Him? Or does it betray the fact that you've forgotten Him and are taking all of your cues from worldly sources and living your own way and trusting in your own understanding? The first one here is, is uh, verse 5. Excuse me, verse 4. The choice of kings. Verse 4, he says, They made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. And so he says here to Israel, Listen, you say you know me, but you have neglected all of my laws for the kingship. Now this has been an issue in Israel from the very beginning, if you remember going all the way back to when the kingdom was first divided after Solomon, and then you had this northern kingdom and this southern kingdom. The very first king of the northern kingdom was Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. He was the first king of Israel, the northern kingdom, and he was an evil man, and every single king of Israel after him was also evil. In fact, the refrain that you hear when you read the historical books, Kings and Chronicles, was they would tell you about one of the kings of Israel and say, he did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Every king of Israel was evil after him, but especially when we get nearer unto Hosea's day. Just think about the last few kings that Israel had during Hosea's uh, reign of prophesying. So there was Jeroboam II, and he reigned for 41 years until he died in 750 B.C. Then his son Zechariah took over as king, but he reigned only for six months until he was assassinated by Shalem in a conspiracy. Shalem became king. He ruled for one month until he was assassinated by Menahem. Menahem ruled ten years. He was equally sinful. When the Assyrians came against Israel, he laid a heavy tax on the Israelites and gave all the money to Assyria in exchange for not killing them. His son, uh, Pekiah, ruled two years until he was assassinated by Pekah, the son of one of his officers. Pekah reigned 20 years and was assassinated by Hosea. And Hosea reigned nine years and each one of those nine years, he would pay a tribute to Assyria in exchange, again, for not killing him. Until, one year, he decided to withhold the tribute money from Assyria, and he tried to buddy up with Egypt instead and get Egypt to help him against Assyria. And the king of Assyria found out about that, and he was not all too pleased, and he came and wiped out Israel. And so we hear what it says in verse 10 at the end when he says, The king and princes shall soon rise because of the tribute. This was the tribute that the kings were paying to Assyria in exchange for them not killing them. They were essentially paying off the pagan nations, trying to make alliances with the pagan nations. We'll get more into that in a few minutes. But this was six kings in 30 years, and each one has the same refrain. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, 
He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. When 2 Kings 17 describes this and comments on the Lord bringing exile on the people as the punishment for their sins, and it says, why? Because the people feared other gods, and they walked in the customs of the nations. That's his judgment on the people of Israel at this time. They feared other gods, and they walked in the customs of the nations. See, they were worldly. They wanted to walk in the customs of all the other nations around them and do what they did and act how they acted and run their nation the same way they ran their nations. They took their cues of how to live politically and economically, their cues for leadership, for what the good life looks like, everything. They were simply living like the world around them. They walked in the customs of the nations. They were worldly. They did not consult the prophets. They didn't listen to the priests. It's not hard to see that in so many ways, this is general human nature, and this doesn't change over time. He simply speaks to the people here, and he says, you have only to look at your leadership. You have only to look at those that you have put in power, those you have chosen to be over you, to see that you don't value what the Lord values. When you look at who you have chosen and why you have chosen them, it's not because they were following the various instructions that were set, set out in Deuteronomy for what the new kings should do and what kind of men they should be. It's not hard to see we still operate this way in so many ways. We, we look to those as leaders. Uh, we look to men who, who we choose based on our standards. And it says so much about us. <clears throat> it's amazing to me that uh, A.W. Tozier, in 1961, he wrote this. And again, this sounds to me like it was written this year, but he said in 1961... It's our belief that the evangelical movement will continue to drift further and further from the New Testament position unless its leadership passes from the modern religious star to the self-effacing saint who asks for no praise and seeks no place, happy only when the glory is attributed to God and himself forgotten. He was saying then that, that we have this same problem, that we try to put those in leadership who are not men of character or men of godliness but have this sort of magnetism and charisma and this modern rock star. And he's saying again, it's, it's the leadership that reflects on us. It reflects that we do not value what God values or cherish what he cherishes. And so he says, they've made kings, but not through me. The second issue here is also in verse 4, but it's also verse 5 and 6, and he mentions the false worship where he says, With silver and gold they made idols for their own destruction. I have spurned your cat, O Samaria. And so now he's simply looking at their religious worship. And what is Israel like if, if we follow them to their places of worship and to watch how they worship? Does that give evidence that they know me or evidence that they have forgotten me? And he mentions that first, they're worshiping golden idols that they themselves have made for their own destruction that didn't come from the Lord. This is idolatry. This is obvious. You know this, but there's something more that's going on here. There's something more going on. Again, if we go back to 1 Kings 12 and 13, we read about why the northern kingdom of Israel worshipped idols. Because after the kingdom was split and you had the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, Jeroboam, who was the king of the northern kingdom, knew that his people would go to worship. Three times a year, all Israelites had to go to Jerusalem for the festivals to worship. But that led to a problem. 
because Jerusalem was in the southern. It was in the tribe of Judah. And so he knew that if his people in the northern kingdom had to go three times a year to the southern kingdom for worship, that their hearts would be drawn back to the southern kingdom. That's where the temple was. That's where the priests were. That's where the kings were. And so, in his own political maneuvering, he simply built new temples, one at Bethel and one at Dan, and he set them up and he said, and there's this line in, in First Kings, he says, Behold, Israel, your gods that brought you out of Egypt. He made these idols specifically for his own political power to keep the people's hearts from being drawn away as he knew they would be when they had to go to Jerusalem for the proper worship of the Lord. And so there's more going on here than plain idolatry. That would be bad enough. But he's saying this was simply a move of political expediency. That to, to Jeroboam and to the, all the kings since, all the people who worship here, faithfulness to the Lord was so far below what was convenient, what was personally useful, what was expedient for them. They did what was convenient. That's why they had these shrines in the first place. It was a politically useful move for the nation of Israel. They had to set these up to secure their empire. Now, you and I face questions very similar to this on a daily basis. They might not have the same range of ramifications of securing national empire, but the question is the same. What are we going to do in our lives where we have to agenda and to commit to following Jesus regardless of what it costs and it will cost. It will cost. Now the the third area that Hosea picks on. First is their choice of kings. Second is their choice of worship. And third is their choice of alliances. 
He says in verse 9, they have gone up to Assyria. A wild donkey wandering alone. Ephraim has hired lovers. Picturesque language to describe the same thing. They're going to other nations, seeking security in other alliances. And he's saying to them, listen, you say you know me, but you're seeking your security in other alliances. You say you know me and are loving me and following me, and yet when danger comes, you run to Assyria. You make alliances with Egypt. And the one thing you forget to do is to look to the Lord, to seek His help, to seek His protection. They are turning to the other nations. We know that King Hosea did this very literally, petitioning Assyria for help securing his throne. And again, we have to say, no doubt, Hosea would have said, listen, that doesn't mean I don't love the Lord. This is just a, a political problem and I'm seeking a political solution. I have to do this in order to secure the kingdom. I'm building God's people by doing this. I'm protecting Israel. Isn't that a good thing? Yet again, we would remember what Hosea said in uh, chapter 6. When he says to them, chapter 6, verse 6, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. What God desires is not us using our own methods to do that which we deem to be good, but he desires us to obey and to listen and to love him. They thought they had a political problem, and so they looked for political solutions. Except God would say to them, you don't have a political problem at all, you have a spiritual problem. That you have neglected the worship of the Lord. You've neglected the word of the Lord. That's what he says in verse 12. Were I to write for him my laws by ten thousands, they would be regarded as a strange thing. Because they didn't know the word of the Lord, they neglected it for so long. He says, were I to write, write it as much as I could, they would have no idea what I was talking about. He says, this is no political problem, this is a spiritual problem. I wonder how often we do the same thing. We live in a world that that is filled with help that's readily available to us, which is a great thing. And we have health care, we have technology, we have uh, support networks. Maybe you have a financial safety net in place, something to protect you where all to go wrong, which is so good. And yet sometimes with all the help that we have around us, we forget to look to the Lord for his help. Sometimes we're guilty of trusting in our own understanding and trusting in our financial safety net more than we trust in the Lord. Putting our hopes and our dreams and our security in the hands of technology, in the hands of medical technology, in the hands of of, health care or support networks. We have all of this and so we think, I don't need the Lord, I'm, I'm secure, I have everything in place. We don't trust in the Lord with all our heart. Sometimes it's good to let a few of those safety nets fall away. Because when that happens, we can return our hearts to trusting in the Lord. I believe sometimes the Lord might sovereignly in his fatherly providence take those safety nets away from us. Because we've come to rely on them rather than on him. We've come to rely on them and we make alliances with our safety nets rather than trusting in the Lord. Now, we come to the consequence in verse 13. As we get to the end of the chapter, in verse 13, he says, As for my sacrificial offerings, they sacrifice meat and eat it, 
but the Lord does not accept them. He will remember their iniquity. I think that's the perhaps the scariest line in this chapter. The Lord will remember their iniquity. He does not accept their offerings. Now, that's the great problem for the hypocrite. The hypocrite is the one who goes out and lives his life all according to his own standards, and yet he comes to church on Sunday and he says, Lord, here is my offering. And he thinks that by doing so, he has balanced the scale and he has won God's favor. And God will look on him and say, ah, you've brought an offering. But God looks back at Israel and says, I don't accept it. Instead, he's looking at their lives. And he's looking at them and saying, I look at your life and you don't know me. You've forgotten your maker. And we know better than to say such things. We wouldn't claim that. But we fall into this trap just like Israel did. We're tempted by this just like they were. And so what can we do if God does not accept our offerings? What, what can we do? What hope is there for the one who's tempted to hypocrisy? I think particularly of Psalm 51 in this case, where David says, the sacrifices of God are a broken heart and a contrite spirit. They would come with their animal sacrifices, and perhaps we're tempted to come with our financial sacrifices or our time sacrifices. And yet what David says is the sacrifices that God does accept, a broken heart and a contrite spirit. And that's from Psalm 51. That's a psalm of David. And do you remember David easily, easily could have been any one of these people in Hosea chapter 8? He was on a path where he could have ended up just like them. We remember David himself. He, had, he was the king, and yet he had committed adultery. He had conspired to murder. He had chosen the path of least resistance, doing that which was politically expedient and convenient for him, getting rid of Uriah. He had not followed the word of the Lord. He had neglected the laws for the kings. He was not being obedient. He could have ended up just like these Israelites. He could have tried to put on his mask acted as though everything was okay, come back to the Lord and said, it's me, it's David, a man after your own heart. He could have claimed, I know you. But that's not what he did. That's not what he did. Instead, he says, Psalm 51, the sacrifices of God are a broken heart, a contrite spirit. Oh God, you will not despise it's a prayer for mercy. In other words, he decides that he is not going to rest himself. He's not going to put all of his trust in who he is and what he has done and his position that he has gained. He's going to cast himself fully on God. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. The threat of Hosea is God will remember them. And the prayer of David is blot them out. Wash me thoroughly, cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before you. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. And he says, You would not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering, but the sacrifices that he receives the broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. 
David knew it wasn't enough for him to offer trite formal sacrifices. He had only one hope, the mercy and the grace of God, to give up completely on himself, to cast himself on the mercy of God, and to trust that this is true about the Lord, that he does not despise the broken heart. And so the Lord calls us today, I believe, when, when we come to that same conviction of sin, we know we ourselves could easily be these people in Hosea chapter 8. They're not worse than we are. We know our sin and our transgression is ever before us, so what are we going to do? Israel's option in Hosea was to, to trust in who they were, to look at their standing. But David says, I throw myself on the mercy of God. That Jesus said there was no hypocrite who would come to him humbly that he would ever cast out. That he welcomes those who do not trust in themselves, but instead of putting on that mask to cover their sin, they simply confess it. They simply confess it and ask the Lord to forgive. And that's what he loves to do. So when you find the conviction of sin, don't claim yourself, your own knowledge, your own strength. Claim the mercy of Jesus. Claim his grace, which never lets us down. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you, by the power of your spirit, will make it a familiar thing to our hearts, that we will live in it, that we will know it, love it, seek to live it out. And Father, we ask for the grace that each one of us, when you bring us to a conviction of our sin, that we will be quick to confess, quick to admit, and to seek the mercy of Jesus. <clears throat> may our only hope be in him, not in ourselves. And may we trust in you, our Lord, with all our heart, leaning not on our own understanding. We ask that you will work in us by the power of your Spirit, in the name of Jesus.